scriptures this morning of the meeting of the newly enlightened Buddha with the ascetic Upaka on the road between uh, Uvera and Gaya. This has um, uh, always been a favorite story, always raises a, a little smile when I think of it, because it, it's a uh, One can see the, uh, one can imagine very easily these two wanderers meeting on the road and this monk being very struck by the, the Buddha's presence, this uh, tremendous aura of serenity and uh, clarity must have been very striking to him. And then um, politely asks, you know, um, what kind of practice do you do? Who's your teacher? What do you? Uh, what have you done to uh, attain this wonderful state of of uh, serenity, radiance that you have? And then the Buddha makes this uh, amazing proclamation: of, uh, "I am the All Transcender, the All Knowing, the only enlightened being in the world. I alone." Um, I'm all enlightened, there's nobody who can call me, who I can call my teacher, so on, so forth. Sounds a bit like uh, Darth Rijons. <laughs> His last book was entitled The Divine Emergence of the World Teacher. Made me think of it. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, there you have this... Uh, this kind of um, announcement, the Buddha proclaiming quite innocently. Well, you know, the man asked, so um, tell him, you know, what uh, what's true. So uh, he was not trying to exaggerate or or impress, but just going kind to of state the facts. And um, and. Uh, and yet this kind of declaration, the result that it had, was that um, this monk thought, you know, this guy's way over the top, or he's had too much datura, or uh, he's obviously had some kind of nice experience, good experience, but uh, you know, whether he's the, the only all-enlightened being in the world, that's, uh, that's another story. It also made me think of a, a tale that uh, uh, one of our, our monks uh, once told me of a, an old uh, an old buddy of his. This is uh, we're we're going back in time now to the late sixties, early seventies, 
And this, uh, this buddy of his was called Lucifer Sam. And Lucifer Sam was at one point, he was head boy of Wellington, very posh public school, but he was very uh, tall, a uh, very powerful character, very dark, with a long nose, and so he looked like Satan, hence he was known as Lucifer Sam. And by the time he'd finished at school, he became a um, uh, became a drug dealer. And he, was, uh, he used to deal LSD. And this fellow was uh, he was a bit of a, a outrageous character, and uh, he um, he used to try and keep keep people in line or people who he, he fell out with or he wanted to to. Um, give a hard time to, he used to uh, spike um, their food or their drinks. This is uh, vernacular for, for planting uh, do uh, doses of LSD unwittingly into people's food and drinks so that suddenly you find yourself off on a, uh, a little trip or a large one. And so, and he used to threaten people with this quite regularly. So people were a bit frightened of him. He was a bit of a, a case. Anyway, one of his... Um, the recipients of one of his uh, um, little tricks decided that uh, that uh, this guy needed a lesson. He was doing this a few too many times to a few too many people. He said, "This guy needs a lesson." And so um, he injected into uh, through the cork of a, sh a bottle of champagne something like twenty or thirty uh, doses full-scale doses of LSD, enough for 20 or 30 LSD trips through the cork, and then sent this bottle uh, with a courier and a little note saying, from an admirer. And uh, Sam, not only being a bit of a, a um, aggressive case, was also a bit of a greedy and selfish case. And I think the motivation had been to put a lot in just so that he'd get a good a good proportion of it, but Sam drank the lot. <laughs> and uh, the reason why I tell it, because the result of him drinking the whole lot was that he then declared himself to be the Messiah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, took off to Glastonbury uh, to take up residence as the avatar of the New Age with a substantial following of people, actually. Um, before the late 60s. So he went off uh, being the all-transcendent, the all-knowing. <laughs> he, came, he came down again about two or three years later. But uh, one could see that uh, Upaga has this uh, same sort of impression of this very uh, illuminated being, but uh, off on some kind of uh, ego-maniacal trip. So the Buddha realized after Upaka had said, well, good for you, friend, and had uh, left him alone and walked off in a different direction, the Buddha, being one who was quick to learn, decided this was not the right approach. <coughs> and so then by the time he got to, to meet with the group of five bhikkhus in uh, Isipatana, then uh, he decided to teach suffering and the end of suffering. And uh, it changed his approach from that of being like a proclamation 
of absolute truth to uh, a path of, uh, of self-inquiry, self-discovery. And this was uh, the, uh, the track that he followed for the, uh, uh, the rest of his teaching career. That he stayed, and he would occasionally make um, asseverations of truth, great uh, statements of one sort or another, just aff affirmations of, of, uh, of truth or ultimate reality. But the main thrust of his teaching and his, uh, his instruction to people in a very greater part was that of uh, teaching a, a method of, of self-examination, self-inquiry, learning from, uh, from our own experience. And today, with the, uh, this impending war brewing in the, in the Middle East, and these great armies, heavily armed, just waiting for the, uh, the signal to begin. Uh, obviously, I find that in my, my own mind today a lot of thoughts of war arising, a lot of uh, tendency, urgency of the mind to go into thinking about the conflict and uh, why it happens and, and uh, how it could be avoided and I could watch very easily how uh, the uh, importance and, and um, the suffering surrounding the, uh, the uh, a war on that kind of scale it demands our attention, it seems to grab our attention, it seems to be um, irresponsible to not be thinking about it, that the mind, I could see, were being pulled again and again. Well, what about this? What about that? But um, one could see also that uh, this, uh, to simply follow that, to believe in that, is really ignoring the reality of the situation because one has to recognize that this is really just the thoughts of war. And that uh, the more that we uh, just believe in the thought, pick up the thought, and get immersed, enmeshed in the, the value system of the thoughts, and feel that there's some solution to the war in what we think, then the war goes on and on and on and on and on. And you realize that, uh, that uh, the, real, the real problem uh, can only be solved by learning to see those thoughts, those feelings in that proper perspective. I remember uh, a, a little poem came to mind by a, a, um, one of the great old characters of the Buddhism in the, in the West, a man called Paul Reps wrote a book called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and this was a very little poem that he wrote. Uh, and it goes, Drinking a cup of dream, 
Drinking a cup of green tea, I stopped the war. Drinking a cup of green tea, I stopped the war. That's a beautiful reflection on life. I remember when I first read it, I thought, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> How can anybody stop a war by drinking a cup of tea? This is absurd. But then you realize that um, what we're talking about is uh, the war in our minds. Because externally, you know, war is going to be going on all the time. There's always uh, conflict, struggle, competition of some sort in the world, either near us or far away, either on a, a massive uh, a scale of a massive battle, like that which is brewing in the Middle East, or just the struggle for existence of the creatures, the little birds and, and insects, animals around us. And doing a walking meditation, I see this uh, this blackbird frantically hunting for worms everywhere, turning over leaves, poking the ground, listening, hunting all the time. But that struggle between creatures, the struggling of the natural world, the animal world, the plant world struggling for life, battling against the elements, looking for food, fearing uh, attack, fearing bad weather. These, this is the war uh, that is always raging in the sensory world. And so that the war that, uh, that Paul Raps was talking of was this, this, uh, this very uh, war that we engage in that is, is real and is <coughs> crucial to our life as long as we attach to it. And that in that moment when there's no attachment, when we let go, then the war stops. We doesn't mean to say the world freezes, that, uh, that insults and uh, missiles are not being thrown around, that one creature is not eating another somewhere in the world. But what it means is that the, uh, the existence of this as, as Dhamma is recognized, that this is the way things are. This is how things are. This is the sensory world. And in that, that moment of recognition, of realization, of non-attachment, then we see that you know, that which is real, that which is true, knows the emptiness of the sensory world. To think that, that there's something that we can do which is going to stop every war in the world, every conflict, is, is very much wishful thinking. Right? The Buddha appeared in the world, and even the, the, the birth and the enlightenment enlightenment of such a one as the, as the Buddha, all-enlightened being, perfectly enlightened. Even he, in his own time, his presence was not enough to stop the wars 
even in his own part of India, still there was squabbles and border disputes and and fighting that going that went on. Uh, there was a lull during most of his life, but soon, uh, soon after, that everyone was at their, each other's throats again. And to think that something's going to happen, something <coughs> can happen, uh, some kind of golden age can come whereby every problem is, is solved, where no other, um, no conflict will ever arise between people, between creatures. This is, is a vain hope, and that in, in Buddhism you never find that. But it's a, it's a powerful part of our idealism as human beings. Uh, there's actually, I read, it, uh, I read of a, a society that is, uh, uh, has been established to try and uh, initiate vegetarianism as a universal standard for animals as well as people. Uh, can you imagine trying to teach every, every bird in the world not to eat insects? <laughs> get the lions to stop eating uh, <laughs> zebras and wildebeests and you know I can imagine every uh, the, uh, every creature in the world being discouraged from from uh, eating any other creature I mean, it's a very very uh, high wonderful principle and these people uh, have established this society in all good faith but uh, I mean something in my heart says Ain't no way this is ever going to happen. If you can get the people to stop eating animals, that would be great. But uh, try and persuade the animal world to stop it. It's just it's not going to be that way. And so, uh, in Buddhism, the Buddha's teaching refers uh, solely to this transformation on the internal level. It's also something actually that. Uh, was the the great dispute between uh, in the around the life of Jesus between the the Christians and the Orthodox Jews because the Christians said the Messiah has come the Messiah is here and uh, the Jews said well if the Messiah was here then uh, the world would be totally transformed and I look out my window and it's the same as it was yesterday. What are you talking about? The Messiah has come. If the Messiah had come, then the kingdom of God would be here. And so that uh, the uh, the division between in the religion occurred. Uh, it's uh, what the Christians were pointing to was the realization of the the Messiah consciousness, the Messiah, the messianic mind, that quality of of, of mind of heart that is there within all of us and that, uh, that Jesus came to, to uh, proclaim and uh, to teach about. And it's, uh, and it's spoken of in that way, that the kingdom of God is at hand, is within you. But uh, because the, uh, what the, the orthodoxy was expecting was a, in a, a great uh, a messiah of a kingly royal stature who would come and completely change the material world, the legal social systems, remove the Roman domination and so on and so forth, that um, they said, well, he hasn't come, so this is, uh, you know, we don't care who you say this guy is, we don't, we don't accept it. So that, that principle 
of looking to uh, cure problems by, uh, by stressing our inner life is very crucial. Because if we, if we neglect that, if that's not what we do, if our attention goes solely to trying to solve problems on the external level, trying to stop war and conflict in the external sense, then because our hearts are still at war, our hearts are still uh, don't understand, don't know what peace is, don't know how to establish peace between ourselves and others. If we don't know how to establish um, justice, peace, purity in our own hearts, how can, how can we possibly hope to establish in that, that in the world? If we don't know uh, if we don't know ourselves, if we don't know the injustices that we create within our own heart, our judgment of this against that, of <coughs> liking this, not liking that, if we don't recognize and see that, how on earth can we ever uh, remove injustice from the world? So that this is very much the, the stress of the Buddha's teaching. And, and because of this stress, what you have is then the maximum amount of goodness and change for the better is brought forth into the world. It's like by, uh, by withdrawing the attention from the externals and stressing the internal transformation, the external is actually transformed as much as it possibly can be for the better. Well, this is just uh, my... Uh, reflections on these things. You don't have to take this as any kind of uh, absolute truth, but this, this is the way that I've, I've seen things working myself. Because when, when our, our mind, uh, when there's peace in the mind, then there's room for wisdom to appear. There's room for true knowledge, true understanding, compassion, wisdom. When the mind is obsessed with its own chattering, its own battles and, and struggles, there's no space there. Any wisdom that does arrive quickly gets whipped up and mixed up with a whirlwind of I and you and I like and I don't like and it should be and it shouldn't be and I remember and maybe next year and, and uh, he should and he shouldn't and they should and we should and a whole whirlwind, a whole massive maelstrom of, of uh, emotional creations, so that whatever wisdom or insights, helpful thoughts are kind of uh, surging up in there, they get kind of whipped up and, and dispersed and mingled with all of the confusion. Our mind is established uh, through the agency the, of, our, of our physical body. We're born into the world. We experience life uh, as we do uh, because of our birth. In this time, in this place, as human beings, there's uh, the body and the mind, nama and rupa. We experience 
life through, uh, through the faculties of the, the six senses, out of the, uh, out of the, the material world, the, the, uh, the suchness, the, kind of the quantum suchness of the material world and the, and the uh, nature of the four great elements. Our senses weave together the, the great and small, the yellow, pink, blue, hot, cold, salty, sour, sweet, soft, harsh. The whole sensory world is, is woven by our, our, our eye, our ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, thinking mind. So that this is, this is our this is where life is experienced through uh, at the point of this this body, this mind, the nama rupa configuration, and uh, the six senses. And it's helpful to uh, to realize that with the with talking about these, thinking about these in particularly in connection with paticca samuppada, dependent origination. That uh, these are. These two different uh, aspects, the, uh, the six senses or the, the nama rupa, mind and body, these are, are just different ways that we can categorize the same patterns of, of experience. So in the, we're, we're, we're just about to come on in the readings to the, the second teaching of the Buddha, the Anatalakana Sutta, the teaching on, on selflessness, and that's based around uh, categorizing experience through the five khandhas, form, feeling, perception, conceptions, consciousness, the five aggregates, the five categories. And then <coughs> the, uh, the third sermon is then the Buddha uses the six senses, the, the fire sermon. He talks of the the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, being on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. So that we have these uh, two different ways of, of, say, slicing up the pie of, uh, of the experience that we have of our existence. Now, considering also in the, the first part of the Patichu Samuppada, um, the whole complex web of um, mind and body, and uh, the uh, the early steps of the of the Patichu Samuppada are particularly difficult to comprehend and get one's mind around. Uh, if you look at the uh, the whole uh, system, it looks to be a some kind of temporal sequence, like A B C, um, in some kind of serial pattern, like equal objects all connected together by um, particular uh, forces or, or the same kind of connection. But the word pachaya, avicca pachaya, sankara, sankara pachaya, vinyanam, and so on, the pachaya which connects all the different elements, there are many different sorts. Pachaya just means conditioned or uh, conditions or effects has some form of relationship with. And uh, in the, the, the chanting that we do, when we do the, uh, for the funeral chanting, the Hetu Pachayo, Aramana Pachayo, 
These are the 24 different kinds of pachaya, 24 different ways that one thing can condition another. So that's, um, uh, I won't bore you, I don't think I'm capable of describing what they, all the different forms are, but basically there's a lot and they're very different from each other. And so you can have one thing uh, affecting another by um, being like it, being close to it, uh, creating it, or just things arising at the same time, or things arising um, because of the contrast between them. There's a whole vast range of different ways that, that uh, one thing uh, affects and conditions another. And so by understanding this, you're, you're not looking at the, the connections between the links of the Paticca Samuppada in, a, in a, a fixed or limited way. It's not like A creates B, B creates C, C creates D. So these things are woven together in, a, in an intricate web. And uh, particularly in this early area, it can be very confusing. Um, sankara, you have as uh, the formulating the, the uh, discriminating tendency, the tendency towards duality or dualism. Then vijnana, you have as six different kinds of vijnana, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, consciousness. Then Nama Rupa, you have um, the Rupa, body, form, and the Nama qualities, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, feeling, perception, conceptions, consciousness. Well, you just had consciousness already, so how come we got it again? And then also, you know, all the things that uh, you know about feeling, feeling, that's uh, physical feelings, so that's, uh, isn't that body consciousness? And perception, sanya, isn't that eye, ear, nose, tongue? So this is why uh, Ajahn Kadisara has talked a lot about the Nama Rupa, Vijnana, mind and body and consciousness being related together as a, as a vortex, as a whirlpool, because these things are, are very they're very closely related with each other. They're all mingled up together. They have uh, o a great overlapping interrelatedness. And then um, Nama Rupa conditioning the six senses. Again, the, you're back to the, uh, the six consciousness, six sense organs, and then they operate through the, the six kinds of consciousness. So, my own way of, of looking at this, what I found most useful, is seeing that this uh, early part of the Paticca Samuppada, you're not talking about a, a sequence of, of connections through time, but much more a, um, uh, a whole matrix, a whole web of, of uh, interrelationship between the, um, the physical body, the sense organs that, that are are there with the physical body, the consciousness arises from them. These things are, are all leaning on each other, they're tied together, they're a web. Then once you get uh, along onto uh, contact uh, with the sensory, all, uh, after the six senses, then you get onto pasa, contact, 
and then Vedana, feeling, they still uh, have, uh, say, uh, there's a still qualities that have already been talked about, have already been mentioned in and amongst the uh, earlier links. But by then, when you're you're talking pasa vedana tanha upadana bhava, then these are beginning to enter upon the temporal sequence, the the event of some kind of uh, impingement on the senses, on the eye, on the ear, on the mind and the arising of desire, attachment, becoming, etc. That is, again, that is part of the time-bound sequence. So it's very, it's very crucial to see that these things are all interwoven and interrelated. And there's also, uh, in one of the, the suttas in another place, somewhere where one of the, um, the bhikkhus is asking Sariputta a whole string of questions. And he's asking about uh, feeling, perception, and consciousness. And he says, are these things the same or are they different? Are they related or unrelated? And Sariputta says, these things uh, are associated, they're not dissociated. And it's impossible to distinguish them completely from each other, even by analyzing them over and over and over again. You can't separate one out from the other, they're intrinsically connected. So that to, to contemplate the uh, experience that we have of life and uh, the, uh, its relationship to Paticca Samuppada, then it's good to, to realize that you're not going to be able to separate these things out from each other. It's a, it's an, uh, a kind of organic mesh of uh, of different uh, patterns, forces, that uh, that go to create this um, formation through which our momentary experience of life is experienced. <coughs> now, given our, our our birth and that life happens here through our ears, our our physical body, our eyes, in our minds, then this is something that that we don't need to turn into a problem. This is something that in itself is not intrinsically uh, intrinsically bad or or difficult. If the mind is undiluted, is is awake, then the the suchness of all experience is what is is known. That uh, There's no problem, no dukkha, whatsoever, necessarily associated with our life, following our birth. Things arise, conditions arise. We, what arises in our our field of, of consciousness, our field of attention, they take on they take on form uh, because of interest. All things are, are rooted in interest, and then they're, they're born of attention. A sound arises, a thought, a feeling, a mood, 
as we put attention onto it, then it gains solidity and form, reality. And then that which is uh, born of attention arises, it, it develops, and uh, becomes developed through contact, increasing contact. We keep our attention on something, and its reality uh, fills out. It takes on color, light, form, life. And then it, it generates feelings, it diverges into feelings. Now, when we're mindful, if there's, if there's concentration, if there's samadhi, then um, that feeling is understood, is contained, is directed. Like the, uh, the energy that any condition has is then steered, directed, and it's... Uh, dominated by mindfulness, governed by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom. And then what it yields is deliverance, the ripening of any condition. When it's, when it's experienced with mindfulness and wisdom, is, it brings deliverance, moksha, and it terminates in the deathless, merges in the deathless, ends in Nibbāna. By following the, the life of a condition, a feeling, a mood, a thought, a sound, as it arises in our mind, following it through its lifespan with, a, with clear understanding and comprehension, it takes, uh, it takes us to Nibbāna, to the deathless. So that uh, the trouble that we experience in life then starts when um, when feeling is not uh, is not governed. When if there's no concentration, if there's no samadhi power, if there's no mindfulness, then um, there's nothing to. Um, to steer that feeling. And it, it rapidly becomes desire. It's like our life energy uh, runs out of control. It's like fire. Desire is like fire. And it's li like uh, fire itself is pretty undiscriminating. Once it gets going, it'll just feed on any object that'll burn. Anything that's in its way that'll burn, it just takes up in an undiscriminating way. So rather than, than uh, like fire, uh, like the energy of, uh, of any condition of life itself, like in this house, the, the fire is confined to the tiba, uh, and uh, it, it merrily steers wonderful warmth all around the house at the right moments, the right places, most of the time. Um, the fire is contained, or like uh, uh, a person's life, when we, we live according to the precept when we live a, a life which is mindful and, and wise, then the fire of our life, the energy, the jivita, the life energy, 
is, uh, becomes the basis for, for goodness, for kindness, becomes a, a field of blessings. But when the, uh, the fire is out of control, then we become a, a heedless, confused um, blight <laughs> upon, upon the world. Oh, and the, de- the desire mind is um, allowed to, to take off. It's like fire getting out of control. And this is what the, uh, the aspect of desire, conditioning, attachment, conditioning, becoming, conditioning birth, old age, sickness and death. This is like the fire being out of control lost control. So that the, uh, the effort that we make with the meditation, with our life, uh, is always to generate that sense of, of containment. Not because of repression, but just like one isn't uh, looking at the fire in the tea as being you know, a repressed, uh, a repression of life. It's like a skillful use of the potential that's there in pieces of wood and the needs of human bodies. To put the two together in a skillful way, then we have a, a comfortable and contented life. Whereas if um, it's not contained, it's not steered and guided, then uh, we get a mess, just like in, in our own life. There's also with, uh, with doing a lot of meditation practice and and having the attention turned inwards. It's very uh, it's very helpful also to to maintain a a, a distrust of the uh, of the the distracted mind, the mind which is caught into desire. The desire mind is is a is not only fire. It's also a liar. It, uh, our minds lie to us when the mind is just wandering and caught into uh, different act- kinds of mental activity. What we hear is mostly lies. Now, this is this is my must admit this is my experience. I don't know what everybody else's minds are doing, but I remember once uh, I think two or three years ago, Ajahn Sumedho, during one of his great expositions in the winter retreat at Amravati paused for a moment and then declared, all your thoughts are garbage. And uh, there was a mixture of feeling of, of being affronted and a feeling of great relief. <laughs> oh, you mean I can just not trust any of it? Well, not a thing. It's all garbage. It's all lies. You think, well, that's a bit, uh, a bit much, really. I mean, there must be one or two things in there that are slightly valid, but the more that, the more that you listen just to the, the random chattering of the mind, you realize that it, it just goes on and on and on and, and bends the truth and promises endlessly. It can go into the, into the past, chewing over old memories, things that we regret. Oh, I shouldn't have done this and I should have done that. If only, if only I hadn't done it that way, then everything would have been all right. 
you, know, you can kind of come up with a nice little scenario of how it all would have worked out had you done this and not done that. Or um, fond memories, how absolutely wonderful it was, that gorgeous holiday on wherever it was, some little island glittering in the Mediterranean. You know, and the, the kind of stomach cramps and dysentery that you had have been politely forgotten and <laughs> the ghastly people that were sleeping on the beach with you you know, all sort of edited out. Neatly rearranged, sanitized memories. Or about the future. We can sit here day after day just fantasizing about the future. Um, what we want to do, whether we want to go, whether we want to, to stay, whether Buddhism is the most wonderful, marvelous, fantastic thing that, and um, I'm determined to do this for the rest of my life and, and uh, or if you have uh, um, tremendous negativity or restlessness or, or despair, speaking Oh, I can't stand it a minute longer in this place. I've got to get out. This is too much. I can't bear it. It's all, it's all over the top. I can't stand these people. I can't stand this place. I can't stand uh, Buddhism, uh, meditation, goodness. makes me puke. <laughs> or doubt, or the present. You can have all kinds of opinions and views about the present, doubts about the present, <coughs> what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Am I doing this right? Am I doing it wrong? Uh, you know, these, these monks who are doing all the teaching, do they really know what they're talking about? Do they just kind of go on and on and on and on and on? And, you know, how do I know that they're right? I mean, sometimes they sound right, sometimes they sound totally off the wall. But uh, how do I know? Have I been getting it wrong? Maybe I should have become a Sufi. Then maybe that'll be a bit better. A bit more movement involved in that. Or worries about yourself. Uh, my mind is a, I have a great kind of worrying streak uh, that goes on in my mind. And uh, the usual, uh, usually clusters around self-criticism. Uh, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of acting. And so I became very adept at putting up a front so I could kind of appear uh, to do things very well and uh, appear and do things to impress people and create a good impression. And then, of course, when you do that, everyone applauds and says, oh, wonderful, aren't you marvelous? So that you, you just do it a lot more. Because <laughs> praise and, and uh, so on, success are really delicious. So I, I realized that uh, as I was growing up, I developed a tremendous capacity to deceive people and to um, and so the the karmic result of, of that of putting on appearances and acting and being able to perform is that you have this this uh, constantly recurring um, uh, suspicion or, or feeling that you're that everything you do is uh, is completely hypocritical because what you're you're presenting to the outside world is totally divergent from what's going on inside and that um, you're really actually totally insincere and everyone's much more um, kind of pure and, and perfect than you are. And uh, the mind can, uh, I've noticed, can uh, really go on and on. 
I sometimes I, 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 I get I catch it. I'd be able to kind of bring it to a halt when you get this feeling of you're a, um, you're not even a real person. That you're so fake that you're not actually you're not actually a person like other people are. <laughs> it's the kind of uh, overstates the case a little bit. <laughs> but I've actually felt that before. Like I'm a fake person. I actually got a, a you know feeling in my heart of I'm not a real person that that uh, somehow there's something so completely false and and uh, and untrue about about you that makes you kind of different and and invalid like everybody else. And then the other side of that is, is of course when you um, uh, when you stop criticizing yourself and you criticize other people and then. Um, uh, and then things like like uh, sincerity and and uh, and the virtue and piety in other people, then because uh, you know you might feel they're lacking in yourself, they kind of can really irritate you in others. It crossed my mind uh, a little while ago. Was, um, one of the this, this is some time ago. One of the monks. Um, he was a senior monk at the time, a monastery where I was living, and, and he, he got into the habit of, of uh, saying little prayers and doing and, and uh, kind of stopping the ceremonies and, and uh, always kind of pausing and waiting and making little, little prayers to himself and, and um, being incredibly reverential and composed. And, and I could hear my mind screaming. God, he's so pious, it makes you sick. <laughs> he's so sincere, it makes me ill. And uh, this sort of uh, arrogant cynic going on in your mind, condemning uh, <laughs> some pure-hearted little monk for being... <laughs> For uh, being kind of reverential and uh, <laughs> and uh, pure in uh, their devotion. So anyway, what uh, what you find is that in the midst of all of this kind of raving that goes on in the mind, that we do have the ability to not attach to it, to just listen to it. That this kind of surging raving. Uh, criticisms and judgments and longings that uh, no matter how powerfully it goes on, we do have <coughs> the ability to to listen to it, to know it for what it is. Like like uh, when uh, in like the when it, uh, when the mind overstates itself. When, when you really make some kind of judgment or comes out with some statement which is just so over the top that, that um, you, know, you, you recognize this is, <laughs> this is all lies and garbage, then it's, it's fairly easy. I, I mentioned uh, before, when I was in the re retreat in the forest, there was, um, this is, I did a three months retreat. There. And the first couple of weeks, uh, my mind was, uh, the first few days were very quiet, and then the, ne the next ten days, my mind went into this incredible 
raging search for something to get a purchase on, something to, to get my teeth into, and it was throwing up all kinds of uh, amazingly wild uh, passions and doubts and worries and everything, anything it could lay its hands on was just kind of flying up, uh, <laughs> hitting the windscreen at high velocity. And uh, I just made it my practice for the whole retreat, just to listen to the sound of silence and contemplate change. So whatever was going on, if it was changing, it was all right. So this was incredibly frustrating to the, the desire mind. The Mara was absolutely livid. And it was getting more and more intense until this was about, about two weeks into the retreat. And uh, I was washing my bowl after eating the meal. And, I was, uh, and uh, this stuff was raving on in my mind. And I just, nope, 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 don't believe it. No, no. And it was uh, getting stronger and stronger, and then it, then it uh, came out with the, uh, the phrase, um, Listen, these are real problems, which it's your responsibility to worry about, and I'm never going to let you rest until you admit it, <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> I thought, where has there been an element of doubt that this might be the voice of wisdom? This might be the, the Buddha kind of picking me off for being, for being naughty and, uh, and not practicing hard enough. I realized the Buddha would not use language like that. <laughs> it was, it was uh, actually just very much like hearing a voice, like somebody else's voice in my mind. And it was like <coughs> the, uh, the desire mind, the ravings of, of Mara, suddenly uh, became, became obvious that anything with that tone of voice, anything which has got that gnawing, sneering, worrying uh, tone to it, anxious, griping, critical tone to it, should not be trusted one millimeter, <laughs> not the tiniest bit. It's all just... Uh, the deluded desire mind, just looking for an object, looking for something to get reborn into, looking for another birth, looking to uh, provide more life for the sense of self. And so the wisdom mind is that which is able to say, no, I know what this is. This is thought. It comes, it goes, it changes. This is not me, this is not mine, this is just uh, perceptions in my mind. This has no substance. And that is uh, the voice of the Buddha, the, the Buddha mind. And I realized at that time it was a very kind of powerful moment for me because uh, the whole retreat changed after that, that, uh, that moment really because then I had the confidence to just dismiss all of that, no matter how reasonable and, and valid its, its, uh, its uh, judgments and doubts and criticisms were, there was just this, able, th this ability to trust that sense of knowing, I, I know you, Mara. And then it would fade and it would vanish. And I realized that, that we have a choice, that, that uh, we can believe the screaming in the mind, 
can listen, I'd listen to the screaming going on, and then I'd, I'd stop it, just listen to the silence, and just let myself choose. Which, which do you prefer? <laughs> <coughs> which is the abiding place of one who is uh, seeking truth, seeking peacefulness? As a Buddha mind, the awake mind takes us to true life, to the deathless, to peace. And uh, the desire mind, the karma manasa, that takes us to death, to confusion, to agitation. And it's a very simple relationship between the two. They're like going in opposite directions, these two currents that flow through our mind in opposite directions. And we can choose. We can choose to follow the desire mind or we can choose to follow the Buddha mind. And you know, as we spend these days practicing meditation, then I, I encourage all of us, m myself as much as anybody else, to, to keep recognizing that we have a choice. We don't have to be caught into the streams of desire and, and the, um, the worryings the fears and, and uh, hopes and despairs that go on. We don't have to be caught in that stream. We always have the alternative of the Buddha mind. It's always there, the silence is always there. And we only have to turn to it. We simply have to make the resolve in our hearts to place our attention upon the pure, the peaceful, the non-attached, and to abide there. So, I offer this for your consideration this evening.